The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, crank up your air-conditioned skivvies and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 355 with guest Ted Faison, recorded live Tuesday, June 24th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now, offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man whose mom said never to look directly into Mark Miller's head, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell here for your .NET listening pleasure. One more time. What the hell show number is this? 355. Good Lord. You'd think we'd found a hobby by now. Yeah, I know. Mark Miller shaved his freaking head. I know. I know. It's beautiful. What is up with that? The guy is getting crazier by the day. The problem now is that he looks like Lex Luthor. He looks like Lester the light bulb. <laughs> Guess it's better than Dudley Do Right. <laughs> Are we doing Mondays or what? Uh, this Saturday, I think we're going to record Mondays. Are you around? No, no, no. Leaving for Houston on Saturday. Oh, see, here's the problem, folks, with Mondays. It's like <laughs> we just can't get together. What about Friday? I can do Friday. Well, Karen mentioned Saturday. They might be able to do it. Well, we'll see what we can do. All right, maybe we'll see. Yeah, maybe we'll do it Friday. Anyway, let's uh, just get going with Better Know Framework. I do miss Mondays, though. <laughs> we'll, we'll get one. Just don't worry. Yeah. This next one's going to be a big one. You think so, huh? Yeah, it's going to be a good one. We're working on it. All right, what do you got for We're me? working on our funny. Uh-oh. Well, you know, today I want to talk about assembly binding. And this is a particularly interesting one for me right now because... Here's the deal. You have uh, an ASP.NET application out there. You have uh, an assembly. Let's say it's a component or some tool that you've written. You've deployed it to the GAC, 
right? Which I, you know, is the most archaic thing. If you ever want to impress somebody with your your geek speak or whatever, when they say, "What did you do today?" say, "Oh, I created a few strong names and deployed some assemblies to the GAC." It's just <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that that stops the conversation cold, right. dead in its tracks for everybody else. If anybody was a, wondering if you were a geek or not, that's now right. they know. So let's say you have an assembly in the GAC, and uh, now you have a new version of that assembly, and you don't want to recompile. You don't want to have to recompile. You just want to redirect the binding of that assembly to the new version. Right. Well, you can go into the web config file and just add an assembly binding attribute in the right uh, in the in the right uh, place. Look up assembly binding in the right. help file. And you'll find a way that you can redirect the uh, assembly name to a particular version with a public token and all that stuff. All the stuff that you can just copy and paste right out of the uh, the shell, the Windows shell in Windows Assembly, the Windows right. Assembly. Right. You're talking about ASP.NET here, of course. Yeah, ASP.NET or or any Windows application too. So how does it work for a Windows app? I mean, web config is ASP.NET. Right. So it would be an app config file. So you're, okay. a config file for an uh, for an exe file for a Windows application is the name of the exe dot config. Okay. And that's an XML file, and you can just put an assembly binding uh, section in there as well. What's cool about that is you can not only say that I want it to be this version of this DLL, but you can also set up a probing section. Where in, and I love that word probing. Sounds like a .NET proctologist. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Uh, you know where you can tell it which directories to look for this direct uh, this assembly in if it's not in the GAC, and even if you want it to be at a URL, you can place the URL there in the binding. Oh, interesting. Section. I didn't know that. Yeah, you can absolutely do that. So you can put the D- the DLL the assembly out on a web server somewhere. And just make a change to the uh, app.config file and tell it to go look for the assembly at that particular URL, and you're done. So there's a lot of stuff that you can do with assembly binding in config files. Know it, love it, check it out. That's Better No Framework for today. Richard, what do you got? Woo! I have an email about show 353. And 353 was the, uh, the, client, the smart client panel, our first of the panel discussions from TechEd. Ah, yes. And our listener here combined our names together in a way that I cannot pronounce, so I'm going to let it go (laughs) and just move on with uh, .NET Rocks has been part of my Zunes podcast collection for over six months now, and I've enjoyed many previous shows. Wow. Show 353, the Smart Client Panel at TechEd 2008, was the first show that made me want to start yelling. Yeah, I remember this email. This is good because, you know, I'm eliciting a response. That's the important part. This could have been a big problem because I don't have a traditional commute. I work from home, and on most days, I walk my three-year-old to daycare and listen to .NET Rocks on the way back, walking through the neighborhood, screaming, you're missing the point, (laughs) would probably have not been a good thing. Fortunately, I restrained myself, and I'm trying not to type from a padded cell with a straitjacket binding my hands. (laughs) I like this guy. He's emotional, you know? We've hit the passion point here. It's awesome. Now we get to his point. Deployment of client software through ClickOnce is generally useless because most software in an enterprise relies on so many other changes in addition to just the client. Hmm. This is yet another case of Microsoft obviously not eating their own dog food. Hmm. While you brought up the point that developers rarely deploy software in any enterprise environment, you failed to mention several other barriers to easy deployment. Hmm. One, changes to the client are almost always include changes to the servers. Tables get added to columns, store procedures are added and deleted, and so on. Two, environments. In our organization, we have four categories of environments. Development, test, user acceptance, and live. 
Generally, each of these need a synced server and client. Hmm. Three, permissions on each environment require different security models. On a development environment, we have to overwrite our production snapshot with values to hide sensitive information like addresses, phone numbers, and credit card information. Hmm. In the production environment, this information needs to be controlled through access. Trying to manage database connection strings between unit tests, various environments is another nightmare that Table Adapters has created, not fixed. Back in the 1.1 days, I wrote a stub application that would use a URL to launch code from a remote share. Of course, this only works if the code is trusted, so the first thing the stub did was run CastPoll to change the user's trust of the URL if it wasn't already trusted. Ooh, nice viral attack. We don't have that issue anymore with .NET 3.5 Microsoft has obviously heard the horror stories. Yeah. But they aren't really fixing the overall problems inherent in the enterprise, only making workarounds less cumbersome. Hmm. And that's from Ken Burke. Well, Ken, I uh, this is interesting. I would love to have Ken on the show, actually, if, uh, if we could, just to talk about this, because this is a really interesting discussion. A lot of the issues that he brought up are issues of deployment in general, click once yes. or no click once. Don't you agree? Yeah, I don't know that I could. I mean, I agree that click once has not gotten very much traction. And I think part of the reason is that Microsoft doesn't give it a lot of love. But here's the deal. Click once is a good idea. And implementing a click once like system yourself isn't that difficult. Right. You're really talking about a, a zip file, putting everything together in a zip file, having an XML file like the manifest that they have up there, and just periodically checking that and checking it while, you know, before you run. Um, I did I did my own click once deployment uh, scenario, and I have it on the Franklin's Net Extras uh, downloads page if anyone's interested in some starting code that'll get you going. But I understand the problem, you know, the problem that he brings up with database versioning and all that stuff, that's not, it's nothing to do with click once. I mean, yeah, that's, but it, it is a part of the but problem. It's a, it is what part of the really problem. What it really speaks to me is we need to do a deployment show or two. I, I totally agree. Yeah. I totally agree. But I mean, you know, logic applies that you know if you're going when you're going to do that you have different you have a staging area where you can test to make sure your database when you make changes to the database they aren't breaking changes and that they're backward compatible yeah. or if you absolutely need to change something you know change a field change something that's going to break the code you create another database and you write the new version to the new database and so you phase out the old version i mean these are just things that we've had to deal with in deployment for for decades. Yep. So, yeah, I agree. A, a deployment show would be awesome. And I don't want to put Ken on the spot to make him actually host it or anything. No, uh, but I'd love to. folks. But I hope Ken sends us more emails. Yeah, send us some more emails. Point. Send us some more questions. If we do a, a show on deployment, you know, we'd like to uh, bring up those points. We will make those points. And we're sending you a mug, Ken, too. So there is some reward to all of this. Absolutely. And if you've got questions, comments, criticism, ideas for show, you just want to tell us you love us. Hey, so Donna rocks at franklins.net. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you know, Greg Brill, right? So, yes, yeah. And, and we've been talking on the show about the New York tour and stuff, and they keep hiring people from .NET rocks. And it's awesome. I love it. He sent me an email. I got it this morning where he made a deal with Microsoft to be the first, I don't know, something about the first provider of surface applications. Really? Yeah. Microsoft Surface, you know the table where you yeah yeah yeah, and I know they're having manufacturing challenges, but apparently they got a .NET library incorporated now. Like there's good things happening. So there. he's hiring people. He's hiring people to work on Surface applications. That's cool. How cool is that? 
So very cool. I don't really know any of the details. I mean, I haven't even responded to his email yet, but I saw it this morning, and I just wanted to mention that uh, that there are people doing work on Surface, and if you're interested in that, send me email, and maybe I'll just hook you up with Greg. But uh, man, that's pretty cool. I I would like to do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I've been thinking about how we could get a good show on Surface for a while. Yeah, and uh, they've been, you know, when I first started poking into it, they weren't even ready to talk about .NET and Surface yet. But that's coming, so I will be getting a show together on that. Also, speaking of getting shows together, I might have somebody to interview about uh, the NBC uh, Olympic Silverlight streaming. You know, Ooh, M- NBC really? is doing a streaming live streaming of the Olympics with Silverlight. Yeah, big Excuse deal. Me. Yeah, so um, uh, a, a friend of a friend came up to the studio the other day to jam. Um, she told this guy uh, that uh, about my studio, and he was like, yeah, I'd love to come up and jam with this dude. Turns out he's like an NBC bigwig who's in, who knows about that project. He's like involved in uh, online, uh, online content. So at NBC. So we might have an in for that. We might be able to. That'd be a great show. Guy. Yeah. Pretty cool. All right, Richard, let's introduce our guest today. Ted Faison has more than 30 years of experience in the software industry and has been involved with object-oriented programming and component-based development since the inception of those technologies. He's worked primarily in the private sector, but he's also consulted for the U.S. and Italian governments. He's a member of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, IEEE, and the Association for Computing Machinery, ACM, and an active researcher in the field of software engineering, specializing in component-based software. He's currently working on .NET projects for the Motorcycle Industry Council and Amtrak. Oh, there's so many good stories there. Oh, yeah. In the past, he's worked extensively with Java, Delphi, and C++. Ted's published numerous papers and given talks at national software conferences. He's the author of the books Event-Based Programming, Taking Events to the Limit, Component-Based Development with Visual C Sharp, Borland C++ object-oriented programming, and graphical user interfaces with Turbo C++. He has a wide range of interests, including molecular genetics, linguistics, physics, and electronics. He speaks English, Italian, and French. He holds a BSEE from California State University, Fullerton, and we are not worthy. <laughs> That's some bio. Uh, we have before us an old schooler. No two A's about it. Back when Borland was... The hip young software development company. That's wow. true. Turbo C and Turbo Pascal and even Turbo Basic. They were great, great products. I, I remember all that. I never tried Turbo Basic, but the other ones were great. Turbo yeah. Basic, that was uh the guy who does now Power Basic, right? Something like that. I remember where you know, just those were the eighties were not a horrible time for development. I would argue that today is better, but we did have a good time back then. Things weren't quite as disciplined as they are now with the uh, major tool makers uh, basically just uh, one in the uh, Windows side. Uh, Borland has pretty much um, evaporated from that scene um, while they were actually the dominant players in the early 90s before things got sorted out. And in in a way, I mean, the computer industry has always been like that, that we've had these players sort of pop up and and spread some love and then fade off into the background, except for Microsoft. Yeah, they usually start as the uh, uh, underdog when they enter a, a brand new market, and they either buy out a company or a product, and eventually, by just sticking to it, they achieve dominance. 
they are persistent. No two ways about it. I mean, I, I think that's what's very interesting about the whole Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation now is thinking that kind of persistence applied to malaria. Yeah, that's true. I think that's very cool. Like the possibilities are amazing. That's but true. also unlimited funds help. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And when a billion dollars is what? Is that all? Then you know, yeah, that has some possibilities. It's a good decision. You know, build Vista, cure malaria. You know, what would you rather do? Oh, <laughs> uh, now you're just picking at them. So, you know, uh, Ted, I approached you to come on the show, really. We were talking about the whole, uh, it was the event-based programming book that really caught my attention. But as we've been doing a bit of a more fundamentals uh, track on .NET Rocks lately, the the idea to sit down with someone who's who's been in this industry a long time and really think about how events came about and evolved to what they are today, I thought it was a really interesting conversation. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I've been looking at events for quite some time now, and um, events didn't materialize, uh, perhaps surprisingly for some people, with uh, the .NET framework, uh, or with Java, in fact. They go way back into the 70s, in fact, to see the uh, first inklings of what we call today events. Um, the first pro- uh, big commercial project, project that, uh, or product that came along that, uh, to support events uh, in the way that we know them today was probably Visual Basic back in the, I would say, early 90s, maybe yeah. around 1991. Yeah, right. yeah. And, and of course, that's because we were now living in a GUI world. You have to deal with events. You, you have to trap the mouse click. That's but true. I was never real. I, I was always confused as a VB developer about, about concurrency. And even though I didn't know the word concurrency, I didn't know what a thread was, you always in the back of your mind, I was always confused about, you know, when is, when are things executing? Uh, while I'm in this event, is other stuff happening? Right? Is my other code just waiting for me? Uh, you know that that kind of stuff. Not, never really thought about it that much, but it was always on my mind. Yeah, it's an important consideration, um, as with all code, in fact, or the concurrency model. Uh, but the Visual Basic paradigm of events is, belongs to a broader uh, collection of uh, programming techniques called event-driven programs. So Visual Basic is an event-driven environment. Windows itself is event-driven. That doesn't mean it's event-based. There's a difference. And oh, I guess we'll get, we'll get into the differences a little bit later, perhaps. But uh, uh, just as a fundamental discriminator, event-driven com- uh, programs are those that essentially do nothing until they receive an event, and then they go off in- internally and handle the event in some way. Now, with event-based programs, they're not necessarily idle until an event comes in. And the, the biggest uh, uh, distinction between the event-driven and event-based is the fact that event-based relates to the internal structure of the program. In other words, the parts of the system internally talk to each other using events, whereas an event-driven system can have any arbitrary structure internally, but it only does things when it receives events from the operating system. So really, I guess event base is a much more complex concept that the way your application communicates to itself is by firing events back and forth. Well, I would think an event from what you just said, if I could paraphrase, an event based uh, or an event driven application just sits waiting and doing nothing until it receives a notification. Right? That's correct. Yes. And an event-based system uh, may be receiving events from the operating system, or it may be any other type of system that's not operating system-based. It could be uh, 
a standalone program running on a portable device. And, and uh, if it's event-based, that means it's all the individual par- uh, parts, which could be objects, classes, or components, they talk to each other using an event paradigm. Well, and you bring up an interesting point here, which is, are events owned by object-oriented programming? Do we have events before OO was around? Yes, uh, we certainly did. Um, the concept of event goes way back into the 70s, like I was saying before, and probably one of the first event-based, uh, or at least uh, systems to consider the use of events, was something called uh, MIL-75. Hmm. That's a module interconnection language developed for the uh, military in the uh, 1970s, along with a host of other uh, types of uh, uh, module-oriented systems, polyliths and a few others that are basically uh, unknown today. But uh, those were the first uh, times that we we saw um, dynamically um, routable events being used in in published uh, software systems. Hmm. So what do you mean by dynamically routable? A lot of times um, when we think of events as such as a Windows uh, program, for example, and, uh, and when you think about handling an event such as a mouse click, what happens is typically uh, the mouse click is handled always in the same way. In other words, if the, a certain object is clicked, it always does the same thing. Right. And event-driven systems are typical uh, in that sense. Event-based systems are, are quite a bit different in the sense that the handler for an event is, can be changed at runtime and is typically changed at runtime. Um, usually in event-based systems, um, the event handlers are only established at runtime. So until the system starts running, there are no event handlers in the system. So nothing is connected to anything until the system starts up and figures out what its wiring will be. And the wiring can be changed during execution based on certain situations. For example, if a system is, is implementing the equivalent of a state machine, it can change the wiring between the parts so that events go to different places depending on what state the, mach- the, the system is in. That's a very powerful uh, way to use events. Uh, so there's, there's a tremendous amount of flexibility in how the events are wired dynamically. And uh, to this end, there are um, patterns of the use of event-based um, parts that uh, allow systems to easily be configured using standard things like builders, binders, coordinators. These are entities that are heavily used in event-based architectures that are um, very easy to use and um, result in very simple systems uh, diagrammatically. <clears throat> you can look at a diagram of an event-based system, and it looks a lot like a circuit diagram because the events look a lot like, or the event notifications, I should say, look a lot like signals traveling on wires. And so the wiring diagram of an event-based system tells you pretty much how the system is put together, just like a schematic diagram would tell you how something, some electrical thing is put together. Would you say fundamentally an event is basically where a, a, a listener subscribes to something that happens at some time and passes in or registers a code pointer at the very minimum and possibly an interface? That's one way of looking at it, but events are a little bit more than that in general. Um, the, uh, the so-called observer pattern that's uh, used a lot today, especially in Java systems, is based on the concept of self-registration. In other words, an, an entity, a part that wants to get events or event notifications from another part, registers itself with that part. 
this is one way of connecting the parts together. In other words, the, the observer registers itself with the observee, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is another more powerful way to hook up the, the, the two entities together, and that's by using a third party or a third control called a, bil- a binder. With a binder, the uh, observer and observee are connected together, and that preserves the decoupling between the two parts. So now the entities can be, the observer and observee can be developed independently. And at some point in the future, maybe they're hooked up together by a binder. I see. So the thing that raises the event, the observer, is the observer the the one that raises the event? The observee. Or or the subject. The subject, yeah. Uh, That just says, I want to raise this event. And then the binder is the thing that has the list of of observers. Well, it's a little more... uh, not quite like that. Um, Basically, uh, in a simple system, at initialization time, when a system is coming up, a binder will take over and and wire all of the subjects to the proper observers. So the the subjects don't know anything about observers. The observers don't know anything about the subjects. Oh, so it does both. There's actually more than a binder. There's a builder first. So when the system starts initializing, it creates instances of all of the entities that will be wired together observers, subjects, everything in the system, typically, and then it passes control to a binder, which then hooks the parts together. Okay. So so that, like as you said, that preserves the decoupling. In, well, uh, and I guess yeah. the only reason to have these separations is so that you could switch out different bits. I could be collecting events from a, a different uh, observee. A subject we normally call or subject. subject, yes, absolutely, uh, and that's where I, the dynamic wiring um, comes into play. Like as I mentioned earlier in the state machine example, where you could have, for example, in state A, uh, the subject uh, the subject fires events and they go to uh, observe, observer A, and later a binder comes along and switches that wiring to a different part. For example, observer B. So now when the uh, subject fires that original event A. It goes to a different part now, and in this case, uh, observer B, which could uh, do something different, uh, perhaps because the system is in a different state. So, maybe we better cite some simple examples, and uh, I'm guessing maybe the mouse pointer might be a way. So if I have um, my mouse pointer, correct me if I'm wrong, Ted, here, if this is not a good example, that a mouse pointer is an event driver, because if I click on it, it does something, and it has state effects, because if I click and then click again... The timing between those two, that's sort of a state management that now it's a different behavior because of two clicks. And the whole wiring part gets interesting when you start looking at I'm clicking on one form versus I'm clicking on a different form. Uh, that's Yes, that's true. Uh, however, it's more um, practical to look at uh, event, event systems by not looking at the way a Windows program works with a mouse because... People have a certain mental image of how mouse, what mouses do to their system. You write to the menu. Uh, whereas in event-based systems, the events are, are not related to GUI things at all. And, uh, I'm, I mean, thinking of an, I'm thinking of an ASP.NET context. Um, right. So an, an ASP.NET uh, service is running out there, and events are happening from the client. They're happening from the server, and the context maintains the state of that session. Yeah, that brings us to something called the model view controller um, design pattern, and that's certainly one of the best places to to uh, that have been discovered, I guess, in the 70s uh, for utilizing events. Um, the idea there is that you have a model which is shared by multiple views, 
And so you might have multiple uh, forms that are hooked up to the same uh, database, for example, which might be the model or some list collection. And when the collection changes, all of the views need to be notified so they can refresh themselves. Now, that's, that's a really good event uh, uh, example. Uh, if we have the controller acting as the binder, the controller then can wire together the model to all of the views. So the views don't know anything about, necessarily anything about the um, model, and the model doesn't know anything about the views. And so when the controller wires the model to the various views, then any events that the model fires get routed to the appropriate views, and then a view can then take whatever action it wants. For example, the typical event that would be exposed is that something has changed in the model. Okay, mm -hmm. so then the views would probably repaint themselves. Right, data has been updated. Yeah, and, exactly. And so and now the views need to redraw it to show the new data. You do that in exactly. game programming all the time too, right? You know, Absolutely, graphics yeah. programming. Yes. Now there's a misnomer in, in a lot of the uh, event-driven uh, and event-based systems out there right now, um, related to the way uh, event notifications should look, and uh, languages like uh, Delphi and Java have. Um, language dependent, I guess you could say, semantics on how the signatures of these uh, invocations, this, the event notifications look. For example, when you fire an event in Delphi or even uh, .NET, it is considered normal to pass as the first parameter in this uh, notification a reference to yourself. Yes. So whoever's getting the event has a reference to you. That is not necessarily a good way to, no. to handle events. No. And the reason is because the, whoever's handling the event doesn't know anything about you, the, who, who's firing the event, and may not even know what type you are. Yeah. And so by passing a reference to yourself to the handlers, and this, in this case it would be uh, with the model view controller example, it would be the models passing a reference to the model in the uh, data changed event that goes through all of the views. Well, now the views have to know what type the model is, and they have to know how to deal with the model. Tightly That's not coupled. a good use of events. Yeah, it's yeah, tightly you've really broken the whole decoupling concept. Exactly, exactly. The whole point of events is, is decoupling. So you don't want either party, either the observer or the subject, to know about each other. And so passing references to each other is bad. What you want to do in an event is pass all the information you can to allow whoever the handler is to handle the event successfully without right. having to contact the, the original uh, subject again. Right. We used to have to do that in some Visual Basic programs when we didn't have any other tools, and it was, it was always a bad idea, but sometimes it was the only way to do it. Um, otherwise, you're, you end up polling, right? Well, there are some, a situation where you would you might want to pass the uh, a reference to the originator of the event in the event handler. It might be, for example, if you have a button click handler on a form, for example, mm. and perhaps it, it manages clicks of different buttons. So you have three or four buttons on the form, and the single handler handles all three or four of those. So now the handler might take different actions depending on which button was clicked. So right. in that sense, that, I would argue that maybe you would want three or four different handlers, one for each button, as mm. opposed to having a single handler for all the buttons. But again, mm. system architectures might dictate uh, requirements so that you couldn't do things exactly the way you wanted. And in those cases, you might have to uh, deal with the uh, pass the, uh, the a reference to the event origin to the handlers. 
So I worked on the spec for the MS-COM control, which is the serial communications control in Visual Basic. I don't know if you mm-hmm. knew that, Richard. I did not. You Because prob- you probably used it. You just said I in did. the last recording you used that quite a bit. And I remember having this discussion um, about the architecture of the event handlers. My original thought was that I wanted to have different events for the different signals, right? And they wanted to, Microsoft wanted to, and uh, so did the rest of the guys at Crescent, have one event that happened, you know, on com or whatever it was, because it closely modeled the behavior of, of basic. And then you would basically check a parameter with a large select case statement to see which signal, you know, was, was thrown. And that to me seems broken. If the first thing you do as soon as an event rises is try and figure out, well, which event was it? Yeah. Shouldn't they automatically be abstracted that way? Yeah, I guess their reasoning was something to do with backward compatibility and something also to do with uh, being able to keep all your code in one place. But I, I agree, Richard. I didn't think it was a good idea. I wanted to see. I mean, if if DTS goes low, there's only one piece of code that needs to handle that. It can go in a separate event. And if there, if there's data that needs to be shared, it's shared. I that just sounds didn't. like a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, one place for all the code just sounds like a mess to me. If you need a switch statement to figure out what you're doing, that means you're essentially multiplexing signal paths. You're sending all the signals over the same path and letting the the handler figure out the the mess. Well, and it, and it's also giving backing all the way back to this whole thought around the asynchronousness of this event model, where we don't know what else is running. We don't know how much concurrency we've got. The more big globs of code we've got versus small globs of code we've got, the more trouble we get into with mutexes and things, protecting simultaneous executions of the same block of code. That's true. So I'm, I'm, I'm all over. Let's spread those things out and give them a natural level of separation so that many different things can be happening at once and not going to run into each other. Yeah, and even... Uh Without events, it's just a good idea to, to break functions down into more manageable parts. Just to make them understandable. Absolutely. I, I use a rule of thumb typically when I write code that a function should, the entire body of a, of a function or message should fit on a screen. I should be able to, without scrolling up and down 200 times, I should be able to see the body of the method right there. And there's occasionally uh, cases where that can't happen, but uh, most of the time a function should fit on a screen. Well, ever since yeah. I got my 30-inch screen in portrait mode, I just haven't had a problem with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so we, we were just we were just walking down the stack here about you know events and notifications and and really this, we're talking about notification payload. When we start talking about providing a handle to the calling object, uh, which I guess we've all agreed wasn't a good idea. What what other payloads make sense? Well, um, regarding payloads, there is a uh, um, well, I would say the, the payload that makes sense is a payload that conveys information about what happened. Now, this is not necessarily the same as payloads that are um, currently being um, um, promoted in the .NET environment or in the Java environment. Um, uh, typically, in, in the .NET world, if you read the Microsoft uh, best practices uh, documentation regarding events, they'll say that when you pass a parameter to an event handler, it should be a parameter that's derived from a class called event um, args. So all the all the payloads should be classes derived from event args. Okay. And why is that? 
that's bad. Why should I, my payload have anything to do with a base class? I pass whatever information I need. And so if I need to pass a string, I pass a string. The problem with um, passing classes that are derived from event args is that every time I fire an event now, every time I define an event, I have to define a new class just to pass those parameters over to the event handlers. So you get what I call class explosion. Uh, if you have 100 events in the, the, of different types in your system, you have 100 just types just to encapsulate the parameters you're passing. And in most cases, events don't pass very many uh, parameters. And in many cases, they don't pass any parameters. And that's called the universal signature. When you have passed nothing and receive nothing back, that's what I call a universal handler. And um, there are a lot of good things about universal handlers, um, but without getting into the details of them. So I was saying the best practice is call for deriving all of your payloads from event args. I disagree with that. Um, if you need to pass an integer to say, you know, what the button click count or the name of the string uh, that, that indicates the caption of a form, whatever the arguments may be, just pass them directly. There should be no reason to create a new type for the sole purpose of passing parameters along. I don't see any benefit whatsoever in that. Transportation so, classes. Yeah. Just for transporting data between layers. Exactly. Well, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no uh, tangible benefit that I can see, and I've been using events for many years. So, here's a here's a question out of the blue. Where do SOA, service-oriented architectures, and events meet? That's a good question. Um, actually, um, service-oriented architectures are the latest fad, but they really are. Um, an incarnation of something was earlier called a component-based system. And back in the 90s, the, uh, a lot of research was done in component-based engineering and component-based software engineering. And I did some, some work in that arena as well. Um, a component-based system is what today is called an SOA. In other words, a component is defined exclusively through its interface, and the interface does not marry you to any um, computing platform like .NET or Java. That's what an SOA basically is. It exposes its interfaces through web services, essentially. Um, so the, the point of connection between SOAs and events is the same as it was between um, component-based systems uh, and events. Basically, um, components can be considered clients or services, if, it's, if there are services, they can receive calls from clients, but they can also send information back to the clients using events. And so in an SOA, you can establish an event channel back to each of the individual clients that happen to be connected to you. And that's supported also using things like uh, Windows Communication Foundations mm. and other technologies. Yeah, so component-based, in not in the sense of like a .NET component, but component-based in the sense of discrete separate parts that operate independently of each other. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that predates .NET by a long way. We were doing that for a long time. Sure. Yes. But SOAs became extremely popular once we were able to um, divorce the implementation from the platform. Now with web services, it doesn't make any difference what platform was used to implement the service, right. uh, anybody can call it. So that, that's really the magic that made all of this happen, the web services layer. 
Yeah, we, uh, it's it, it, it certainly degrees of separation there that the web services layer just made it now. I don't care what operating system you run. Uh, I've stripped out the differences in data types where your machine thing is got a different view of an integer than I do, like really diluted all that down. And that's, that was the key for event-based, uh, for component-based programming, allowing different components built for different platforms to interact without any glue or adapters or any ad hoc code. Hey, this is Carl. I just need to take a minute to tell you about the latest offerings from our friends at Telerik. As you probably know, they've recently released their huge pack of web controls built on top of ASP.NET AJAX that'll help you build impossibly fast and interactive applications in no time. But you've just got to check out their Windows Form stuff. It looks just like WPF. How about a carousel component in Windows Forms? How about a super powerful grid view control and 32 other desktop components with dazzling WPF-like features? In reporting, Telerik has this new design surface that simulates graph paper. And it's got so many advanced page layout capabilities, it looks more like graphic design software. So visit www.telerik.com and download a free trial. And make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. You know, the thing I really find interesting is the way events are implemented in different languages. I remember in Visual Basic, you know, 1 through 6, it was just simply you... You click on the component, you know, you you find the event handler in the list, and that was the really the only way to wire, wire it up. And uh, in VBNet, of course, it was kind of similar, but you could see the handles statement was clearly the magic there, and the add handler statement, which was also different. And then in C plus uh, or C sharp, you've got the uh, you know the whole adding the handlers. That you you know that you're sort of more like the Java model, sort of like the subscribe model, and, and Java is kind of a different animal altogether, isn't it? Well, it's a good point. Um, .NET and Java are fairly similar, but they're also fairly different in terms of events. In .NET, events are first-class language uh, or .NET entities. In Java, there is no such thing as an event. An event is really nothing more than a method call to an interface. Right. There's no language entity called event or delegate or anything like that that we might know from in um, .NET. Yeah. So uh, because there's no entity called um, event in Java, the only way to fire an event is by calling through an interface. In .NET, you can fire an event calling through an interface or, and I would say preferentially, by calling a delegate. Right. And um, there's, there's, using delegates is a superior way of handling events in most cases. Right. And uh, the reason is this. Let's say you have a, a, a part A that needs to fire an event that goes to part B. In Java, I would have part A to fire that event would have to have a reference to the type of B mm. or to a base class of B. Mm. And then it would have to hand, have a, um, a handle a reference to the instance that it needs to fire the event to, hmm. and it would then call B, and probably uh, using a reference, it would say something of the, of, of, of the sort B dot do something, right. and where do something is presumably a method in B's interface. Tight coupling, that has, again. That has two problems, exactly. Number one, A needs to know about B but when it was built. What right. if B comes along much later? Well, they had no idea what, what C and D and E are mm -hmm. down the road, so those can't be called from A. So that's one problem. The second problem is 
A is deciding what method to call on the interface. Mm. Uh, that may or may not be a good choice. Mm-hmm. So now A is coupled logically to logic inside of B because it has to know what method to call in B. So, so typically, we, do Java programmers create another layer of abstraction, a sort of an object to help that uh, whole process be more decoupled? Uh, no. Fundamentally, you, you, in Java, you call object.method. And that's, you can use a anonymous methods, and right. you can use various techniques to get around the fact that you're calling a method, but you're calling a method. You're still calling a method. Yeah. In Java, to call events a la uh, .net, you have to use reflection, and you have to use method uh, uh, .invoke mm. calls, uh, which are similar to method info .invoke calls in the .net world. And actually, it's... The opposite method info, I believe, is in Java, and method is in C Sharp and .NET. But anyway, they achieve the same thing. They're doing uh, reflection-based uh, calls, dynamic invocations. Well, I always thought of the delegate as a sort of a code pointer and an interface together in one tight little package. Um, the delegate really um, does not um, include any type information about the recipient. Um, only the it only interface contains- the call. Yeah. It only contains the signature of the method to be called. So, so if, if, it's, if it's calling part B and method one, it does the delegate itself doesn't know anything about the part itself. It only knows the signature of that method one that it's calling. Yes. So that um, a method one or uh, any method with the same signature could be referenced by the same delegate. I'm glad you said signature. That was the word I was trying to find, not interface signature. Yes, which means that it doesn't matter what who who gets it as long as the signature matches. Everything's going to be fine. Exactly, and that's that's really the power because now yeah. uh, I can write a, a component that fires, for example, universal events. In other words, events that take no parameters and return nothing, and I can wire those to any kind of object in the future that comes along. Yeah. So, dynamic power. Yeah, very cool. And then it, with the whole asynchronous model in .NET, uh, working on any delegate, you can basically create a delegate and call any method asynchronously if you want to. You can also do that. Yes, uh, that works very that works very very well for for Java. It's a little more complicated to call um, the fire events uh, asynchronously because there's no built-in language support for it. Yeah, um, I guess that was what really messed me up in in VB. Richard was, I mean, you remember the timer? The timer was really the only way that you could do sort of asynchronous yes. programming. <laughs> and I had to drop a timer control, which didn't on my form, which didn't actually show on the form. Yeah. But just to have it there, to be able to have it fire yeah. at intervals. For yeah, and me. you set the interval to whatever it was one millisecond, fifty-five milliseconds for whatever I can't remember. But what? And you uh, and you just enable it once, and then when you get the event, now you're you're asynchronous, and then you just disable it. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Oh, I used to do that to to move up to move up progress bars. Yeah, sure. Even though I didn't know actually how long anything was going to take, yeah. I had to guess and just make the progress bar move because it made people happy, which meant I set it 99% a lot. Well, look at Vista. They're still doing that today. So, come on. Yeah, that was progress a joke, is not folks. an easy concept. I mean, we, <laughs> and I think the issue here is, of course, we're talking about events, is we don't always get events when we want them. Is there something special about sort of real-time events? Um, hmm. With events, um, as with... <clears throat> Lots of types of uh, large systems, threading becomes and concurrency become important. Um, for example, when you fire an event, there's a rule about firing events in concurrent systems. You never want to have a lock 
of any kind, an interprocess lock or a thread lock when you fire an event, because you don't know what the system is going to do in response to that event. It may call back into you, and that would cause an immediate deadlock in most cases right. if you're trying to use the same resources. So that's, that's the rule, for example. When you're in, in systems, just don't lock things if you're firing events. Uh, make sure everything is open before you fire it. There's another problem with, um, um, with firing events in systems where an exception occurs in the event handler. Now, you have to be careful about uh, how the system reacts in those situations because let's say, for example, an event has three handlers or two handlers for simplicity. So the same event is, is tied to two different listeners. Okay, well, what if the first one throws an exception when it's handling the event? Should the, should the system not call the second handler, or should the system stop, or, or should it call the second handler? So how the system reacts in the presence of events, of exceptions, is also important to, to understand. And in most cases, you don't fire events without putting a try block around the, the fire um, method. So that, that's one thing. But getting back to the concurrency, Threading is a big deal because in event-based systems, it's very common to have re-entrant uh, calls. So let's say, for example, um, a client calls a server, and the server, for example, is going to engage in some long operation, and it wants to update the progress bar on the client. So occasionally it fires a non-update or a non-progress update back to the client. If the client is blocked waiting for that original call to come back from the server, yep, dead. It has to be prepared to receive events while it's sitting there. So, um, and that's a problem that, for example, uh, raises its head very uh, quickly in um, Windows Communication Foundation systems. I can't uh, tell how, tell you how many times I've come ac- across uh, readers and uh, programmers that are looking for help on deadlocked clients. Their client did the call and it just locked up, and uh, that's that's a reentrance, uh, reentrancy, and concurrency issue there. Um, that's related to the event um, architecture. In this case, the uh, the deadlock occurred because Windows Communication Foundation calls from the client went in, for example, on the UI thread, and when the call came back, so the UI thread blocks on the client side while the call is in progress. In the meantime, the server is doing something, and it occasionally fires a non-update back. The non-update goes back to the client, and the client wants to run that, uh, at least in most cases, on the UI thread. Well, the UI thread's blocked, so that call is going to stop until the thread, the, the first call, times out. In which case, the whole call stack will unwind, and you'll get an error back from the first invocation, which leads to difficulties in understanding what happened for the poor programmer. But that's a typical situation where WCF locks up um, due to unforeseen concurrency issues, and there are ways that the WCF. Uh, exposes to avoid these problems, but a person has to understand concurrency in order to figure out how to solve the problem. It's kind of difficult to tell a programmer, when you're handling an event that's happening on another thread, don't call anyone else. I mean, it's kind of difficult to say that. Well, that's true, but there's a fundamental, another fundamental rule um, in event-based uh, systems, and that is this. When you fire an event that crosses a component boundary, Always use a common thread to do that. In other words, no matter what thread you're on, always use the same thread to talk to other components. And, for example, in desktop applications or real-time device applications that have UIs, you use the UI thread to call between components. And then inside each component, you can do any threading you want, but you never want to call another component with your internal thread if you're a component. And that's what the whole uh, synchronize invoke interface exactly. is all about. Exactly. 
Exactly, and that alleviates the, the, the problems of, of concurrency across component boundaries. So you always know that if you're a UI system, you'll always get your calls on the UI. And then if you need to spawn background threads to handle that event, you can. But just don't call other components on a background thread. And it's not enough to tell uh, a programmer, you know, be careful, don't do that. <laughs> Sooner or later they'll find out. But fortunately now, yeah. in Windows and .NET 2.0, they've added some code where if you try to Let's say you're handling an event uh, from a socket uh, program, and when the event comes in, uh, you want to update the interface uh, somehow, uh, enable a button, for example. Well, typically socket-based events come back on background threads. Right. If you try to update a user a control from a background thread, that's not going to work. The system is not doesn't UI components do not allow calls from background threads. And now, before .NET 2.0, the system would simply lock up. Right. And you would have no clue what was going on. Now with 2.0, they've added actual uh, code to test what thread the incoming calls are on. And if you're calling the UI method from a background thread, you'll get an exception that tells you, no, wrong thread, can't call this method from a background thread. Right. So I guess there's so many programmers have run into that problem, they've finally built an actual exception into the .NET framework to help out. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, the, and that whole thing with the synchronized invoke gets real mucky in terms of, in terms of programming if you're not used to doing it. But, I mean, if you're, if you're used to handling threads in C++, for example, it's a breath of fresh air. That's true. Actually, yeah. the, the problem is so common that in event-based systems, there are, there are design patterns um, that are used to handle the situation. For example, let's say you have some component that's doing a lot of work, and that it uses background threads to do the work. Uh, let's call this component a worker. It can be doing anything. Um, the worker should be specialized in, into performing the task that it's given to For example, let's say the worker is supposed to search your file system for a file with a certain mask. Okay, so the worker is going through, you know, doing its uh, thing through their file system. You have a terabyte drive that's going on for tens of minutes looking for files. When it finds files, it may want to notify whoever called it that here's the list of files as I found them. So, for example, in Windows Search, this is kind of what happens. You launch a background process, which is a worker. The worker finds things, and as it finds them, they show up in your, in your Windows Search window. So to handle this in an event-based way, the search itself would be a worker. The worker does not know anything about threads. All it does is it looks for in the current folder for a file with a certain mask, and then it searches recursively all the sub uh, um, uh, folders of the current folder for recursively until it's searched the entire system, basically, or at least the, the entire subdirectory. As it finds things, it fires events. Now, who created the background thread for the worker to work on, and who is switching these events back to the UI thread? Well. That's the job of what I call a coordinator. So the coordinator is kind of like the supervisor of the worker. The, the coordinator decides what thread the worker is going to run on and calls the worker on that thread. So the worker has no clue what thread it's running on. It doesn't control threads, has no threading knowledge whatsoever. And as it fires events, the coordinator catches the events, and it's the coordinator that then marshals those events back to the UI thread if, if that kind of marshalling is necessary. So the worker is now specialized into carrying out the task that it needs, and the coordinator does only two things. It creates a thread 
or gets one from the thread pool if necessary, and it switches events back to the correct thread before delivering them to the system. So it's a very clean model. I was so happy in .NET 2.0 to see the background worker component. Yeah, and, you know, that's, yeah, that's heavily used, and it, uh, that's why they added it there. Yeah, it's, it's a nice design pattern. Let's talk about that a little bit. What, the design patterns or no, no, background no, the, workers? The background worker component. Well, the background worker, in, in a sense, embodies some of the functionality of coordinators and workers together. Basically, with the background worker, you can ask, you can schedule something to run on a background thread. So we're, we're talking about basically the same, the same type of functionality, but just out of the box and without any special types. So if you need anything to run in a background thread that's not too complicated, a background worker is a perfect choice. Um, sometimes background work is a little more complicated than just a single invocation, and maybe in that case you'll need to go to maybe your own personal mo- uh, uh, classes. But right. a lot of times you just need lightweight things to happen on the background, and that's, that's fine. Another way to do it is by using delegates and using a, the async invocation of, of delegates to handle things in the background without having to worry too much about details uh, if you have delegates available. Yeah, the, that's that's a nice way to do it. Of course, what's great about the background worker is that it it has uh, inputs and outputs, and it has a way to update progress. It has a way to cancel from the calling thread. Um, Absolutely, all of this stuff that you know requires a little bit of uh, synchronization, a little bit of uh, you know um, the I synchronize invoke pattern, like all these nice little things wrapped up in a nice little component. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. You don't have to do any of that. That's right. Um, one of the differences between um, the object-oriented approach to um, handling background workers and the event-based approach is in the absence of interfaces uh, in the event uh, side. When you implement things using events, you don't typically create a lot of interfaces. Um, remember, events are used to communicate across component boundaries, but also across object boundaries. Uh, in, in traditional um, object and object-oriented programming, people are always stressing uh, call to an interface. You know, what's the contract? Right. Well, contracts may be important if you have a lot of intensive interactions between, for example, class A and class B. Maybe class A has to do a lot of calls to class B to, to carry out some process. Therefore, class A will have to know uh, what methods to call and what order with what timing. And these, obviously, these classes are fairly coupled. Um, in, an op- in an event-based situation, the two parts would preferentially be implemented so that they didn't have to know so much about each other. For example, in an event-based world, it would be probably better to have one signal go from A to B, and then B would do all of its thing in response, and then whatever happens, happens, um, as opposed to some very chatty back-and-forth sequence of calls between A and B. And so with the chatty calls, interfaces are a good thing. You have to invoke all the methods of the interface that you need in the proper order. In the event-based world, you don't do that. Typically, the bandwidth of calls between event, uh, in event-based systems is much lower than with interface-based calls where you're calling a lot of detailed things from one object to the other. In an event-based uh, situation, you, you don't want one component to know exactly all the details about the other component. So it should have some granular, but not too granular, event that indicates, you know, the other part, party should start its work or should do whatever you need, uh, as opposed to having all of these back-and-forth calls. And therefore, in events, you shouldn't need 
interfaces as often as you need in typical object-oriented systems. In other words, the interface of the object you're calling shouldn't make that much difference when you're firing an event. Now, Microsoft uses this method a lot, and, I, and I'm thinking about uh, ASP.NET again, where the, the whole pipeline of the series of events that fires, it gives you opportunities to insert your own code in the rendering of a web page. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a model that, as you said, is heavily used in not just ASP.NET, but in other places as well. It works well, where you can hook in your things. Um, think about, for example, the way, the old way of doing things with, uh, for example, Windows message hooks and uh, ways of uh, hooking up uh, your own code with the Windows uh, event pipeline. Uh, that was very messy. You'd have, you, you'd have to make calls to get the previous list of handlers and then insert yourself into the list at the, at the beginning and then make sure you call the next guy in line when you're finished and all of these things. With an event model, it's much simpler. You simply handle the event, and you don't care about who else is in the list or who else is called. It has nothing to do with you. So an event uh, way of doing things is much easier to manage for programmers than the old ways. You just took on the events you care about and say, when this event fires, do this for me. Exactly. Who else is in, in the chain? It, there is no chain when, when you're an event handler. It's the event originator that knows about who's registered for the event, but the handlers know nothing about each other with events. Don't know, don't care. Exactly. And the less you know, the better it is. Well, certainly the more reliable it gets. Absolutely. One thing about event-based systems that makes them very um, uh, useful is the level of simplification that they bring to larger systems. Because uh, systems, um, because um, objects that use events to talk with their neighbors don't know who their neighbors are, they can be taken out of the system and tested independently. So an right. event-based system is very testable. I can take entire parts out, one part or collections of parts out of the system, put them in a test fixture, and test them uh, thoroughly, which is not possible with typical systems. In typical systems, if you take out one class, you're probably going to take a substantial part of the rest of the system with it in many cases. And so you really can't do granular testing with, with a traditional object-oriented code. When it's this is, I mean, it's interesting that we, we, we use events every day, but not really thinking about the full potential of uh, how this makes code better. Exactly. That's why the subtitle of the, the event-based book that I wrote is Taking Events to the Limit, because a lot of people know what events are, and they've used them for, for handling button clicks and other simple things, but they haven't really utilized the full power of them. The full power comes into play when you start using them internally inside the software to hook the parts together. And uh, then you have this huge uh, opportunity uh, that opens up for testability, maintainability. Um, uh, you can test components in different combinations. Like I mentioned before, you can switch events dynamically from one place to another. You have all of these opportunities to simplify your code, and uh, the, the decoupling effect is, is amazing. Event-based systems are all about decoupling and how to produce large systems with little coupling. Well, and, and it's all, this is not about version one. It's about subsequent versions and how we're able to change and add and, and plug additional features in without struggling, mm -hmm. uh, without breaking the existing app. Uh, yes, that, but versioning is not the only advantage. Like I said, um, testability is a significant mm. um, um, advantage of event-based systems. Let's say, for example, you're 
testing a web page. Well, today with ASP.net, uh, the ASP.NET model, if you create a web page that's hooked up to your database layer, for example, that it needs to call to get data from, you can't run the, the web page by itself. There's a, in Visual Studio, there's a button in the Solution Explorer. You can right-click on a web page and say, View in Browser. Well, guess what? If your view is, is coupled to the database layer, that's not going to work because the view by itself is not usable. You have to decouple the view from the database layer in order to view it in the browser without bringing in the entire rest of the system. So in ASP.NET, the, an event-based um, architecture would greatly simplify development of web pages. Basically, you would want the um, inner parts of the system to fire events to pages when things change and not have the page call back into the system. That violates the, the model view controller pattern dramatically. And so, all, if you will, all ASP.NET systems are upside down, where the view is coupled to everything else in the system, because the view is where everything starts in ASP.NET, where it would be better if, if we used more a Windows-based approach, where the view fires events when you click something and when you touch something on the screen, it fires an event, and the event goes wherever it goes. The view doesn't know where that event goes. The controller behind the scenes has wired that event to go someplace. Well, you, you know what, though? I mean, ASP.NET works, and it works really well. If I'm listening to this and I'm, I've written some ASP.NET stuff, I mean, what is the danger of having that coupling there? Is it enough to make me want to do my next project with the MVC framework? Uh, I wouldn't recommend using the MVC uh, framework uh, because it's, it's also, if we're talking about the same one, um, it's fairly complicated mm. in its implementation. Okay. Uh, there's no danger in using the ASP.NET the way it is, of course. It works fine. But as you get larger and larger systems, the cost of being able to, let's say you make a small change of a pixel on a web page, and you want to see what that looks like when it's rendered with the rest of the system. Maybe you have some user controls on the, system, on the page that you can't see until you actually see it in the browser. Mm. Well, to bring that up in a browser, you may have to recompile the whole system in order to, to bring that up. And uh, that can be expensive when it comes to compile, build, compile, build uh, all day. It'd be nice to just say, let me just show me what it looks like, you know, without, I don't want to care, I don't care about the rest of the system. Just show me the thing, the view uh, in a page by itself. And you can't do that if the view is, is coupled to the rest of the system. But you that also that means easily. that you have to build your own alternate views. Well, um, with ASP.NET, there really is no easy solution. Uh, yeah. The solution would be to change ASP.NET itself. There's, okay. there's no easy way out there. Um, but it's, it's just funny how ASP.NET has a very different architecture from the event model, uh, uh, event perspective from Windows or other things that people are very comfortable with in terms of events. They chose a totally well, it was different. Really, it was really kind of driven from the experience of Windows Forms, wasn't it? Not really. If you think about the way... Um, but the experience, not the architecture, the experience of programming. Well, I, guess if you, I guess it's, it's partly uh, derived from that. I mean, they're but, faux events. They, the, the events that happen from stuff on the, on the client, you know, that by the time it gets to the server, it's gone through such change and metamorphosis and, and so many layers. That's true. But once yeah. it gets to the server, it'd be nice if the event came in to some class that creates the controller before it, can create, it creates the viewer. Yes, okay. And here we create the viewer first, so the viewer has to then create whatever is behind it in order to talk to the rest of the system. It's difficult for the view to be... If, if the view is not the first thing um, um, 
created in this pipeline, it would be easy for some back background object or controller, if you will, to wire up the system. And so the, the view could interact with the rest of the system, the web page, I mean, could interact with the rest of the system using events, not knowing who the handlers of those events are. Yeah. So in that case, if, if, if I wanted to just view the web page in a browser, I could bring up the web page with all of its event handlers set to null, and that right. way it could come up by itself. I see. And I, yeah, that, that would be kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, you'd have instant looking at your web forms, no matter how many web forms you, or how big your project is. And that's where, like I said, they, with large projects, event-based architectures tend to be a better idea because they keep, they keep complexity uh, way down. And I, I like to say to people uh, when they ask me how does complexity change with size, in typical systems, complexity increases exponentially with size. With event-based systems, complexity tends to increase linearly with size. Hmm. So if it's twice the size, it's twice as complicated. If hmm. in a typical system, twice the size, it's four times as complicated. And that's right. because of all the interactions between all the types and the parts that know everything about each other hmm. and all of these other things that go on in the system. Yeah, and well, it's all about maintaining that separation so you don't uh, multiply the complexity. Exactly. And that's why binders are so important. Where a, a binder is a third party that steps in and hooks up one guy with another. Those two guys that are interacting don't know about each other, and that's a, that's a key to keep complexity down. Huh. Well, um, let's talk about just briefly because we're running out of time. Your book on um, on events. This is um, available at Amazon.com. We're, we'll have a link to it on the page. And if I'm already a Windows developer, I'm mean, using C Sharp or VBNet and ASP.NET. And everything's going along swimmingly, and I'm you got my delegates, and I've got my event handlers. What am I going to get by reading your book that I might not be thinking about that's going to really affect the way I write code? Um, two things, I would think. Um, first is the notion that um, systems can be diagrammed at a different level using uh, events. And I, in the book, I introduce the concept of signal wiring diagrams. These are diagrams that look a lot like schematic, electrical schematic diagrams where you have little boxes that have pins on them which represent the objects and components in your system, and the pins have wires that lead to other components. And these are simply the wiring pathways of events from one part of the system to another. And um, so diagramming a system using this type of uh, uh, concept allows you to think of systems not in terms of what the class hierarchies are or what the associations are. A lot of times that's just extra information that confuses people. In most large systems, component-based systems, the class hierarchies are not as important as who's talking to who. I don't care what he's derived from. I'm just talking to him. In fact, if I'm talking to him through an event mechanism, I, I don't even know what type he is. Right. So the class hierarchy becomes meaningless, and that's why signal wiring diagrams or just wiring diagrams, as I usually call them, become very useful to, to model these types of systems. So from the book, I think a reader would first understand uh, that maybe the, today's um, UML diagramming techniques are not the best for uh, the, uh, showing the, uh, an event-based an event system. And also, a reader would probably understand that Events are more than just uh, mouse clicks. Uh, there's a lot under there that, that you can do with events that is, is much more powerful than right. they realized before. And um, the book talks about different roles in event-based event systems, for example, builders and binders that I've talked about, and workers right. and coordinators. 
if you start modeling your system using these roles, then all of a sudden you step back and look at the system and it has a very simple um, uh, structure. You have a series of workers that do work, a series of coordinators that are acting like the supervisors. It looks a lot more like a, a collection of people interacting or integrated mm. circuits doing this work. In other mm. words, the fact that these are software processes doesn't really make that much difference at the end of the day in mm. terms of understanding how the system works. When you see the signal wiring diagram and who talks to who, uh, a lot of times that's the best way to understand how the system works. And if you're using standard roles, it makes the system even easier to understand for people who know what those roles do. Excellent. The book is Event-Based Programming, Taking Events to the Limit. Uh, the author, we're speaking with Ted Faison. He is uh, the author of this book. It's 700 pages. It looks like a great summer read. <laughs> or if you're having insomnia, it could help. It's there as well. <laughs> it looks great, though, and I think I might pick up a copy myself. Great. Thank you, Ted. All right. Thank you very much. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Okay. Thank you. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.